You are listening to episode 22 of the Lewis and Kyle Show with Mike Case. So it's 136 years old. It now has its fifth generation of ownership working at the company. If you've done any statistics, if you look at the number of family organizations that make it to the third generation, it's about 30%. That make it to a fourth generation, it's about 15%. And to make it beyond there, it gets down into the low single digits. So that in and of itself is, is rather remarkable. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Kyle and I bring on experts based on our curiosities, whether that's real estate, entrepreneurship, technology, or any other field. We bring them on to learn more about them and about what they're so knowledgeable about. Today we have on Mike Case. This is one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done. Mike prepared so thoroughly for this interview. He sent us six pages of notes to look through before we even had our conversation. Mike spent 33 years with the Westerbelt Company, a privately owned Timberland company that operates out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where he spent the last 17 years as a CEO. As will be made obvious throughout this interview, Mike has an incredible way of looking at the world and a unique way of, of problem solving. We get into how he sets goals, how he develops habits, communicates, and sets routines for himself. Today, Mike is enjoying retirement by continuing to improve, learn, and serve those around him. We really enjoyed this conversation. We got a lot out of it, and we hope that you will too. With that, we're going to cut to it. Hello, Mike. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, it's a pleasure, Kyle. Um, nice to be with you, and, and Lewis, nice to, nice to meet you virtually. I uh, look forward to getting to know both of you better. And it's great meeting you as well, and hopefully in Alabama in a few months, we'll all be able to get together in person. I just want to start out by saying, that you put a ton of preparation into our show and we really, really appreciate that thought you put in with some of the documents you presented to us for reviewing the materials on your thoughts and different things. So we wanted to start things off by getting a little meta and asking you about the framework you provided us for how to have high quality conversations. So before we start the conversation, get an idea of what makes a good conversation so we can keep it in mind for our chat. You shared with us that the measure of a conversation yeah, the measure of the quality of a conversation is the degree of learning that occurs. So how do you ensure a quality conversation and what are the prerequisites to an authentic conversation taking over? Okay, well, a lot of the, of the nomenclature and the terms I'm going to use came from a book that was uh, written back in the 90s called The Communication Catalyst. Mickey Connolly and Richard Rianishek are the authors, and I got to know uh, them. They did some work for us when we were doing a joint venture uh, with Georgia Pacific trying to bring two cultures together. And obviously everything you do in life is based on having a quality of communication and learning and listening. So the things I'll share and some of their mental models that we'll talk about, I want to give them proper credit. So what's the basis of, of a quality conversation? Well, I think it starts off with understanding that the conversation is two pieces. There's the talking part and the listening part. And a lot of people think the listening part is just waiting to talk. And it's, it's quite different from that. So I think what we have to realize is that every person brings three unique things to every conversation. The three of us tonight, we bring what we call the essential purpose. It's what is it you're for? What are the things, what are your hopes, what are your dreams, what do you want to accomplish? So that's always there with you. The next part would be the concerns. You know, what am I worried about? What I want to try to avoid? And then finally, the, each of us has a particular set of circumstances that we live within. And some of those are negotiable, some of them are not, but they do exist and they'll, they'll define that. So as we go into a conversation, the point about the degree, the quality is based on the degree of learning. I think we start off with that curiosity about not how do I win the negotiation or how do I win the debate? It's what can I learn? 
Uh, so the first thing you start off with is you try to understand the other party, what's important to them, why that's important, what their concerns are, and then what their situation is. So with that in mind, we, we, we start off, you know, the dialogue is to, to ask questions. One of the things that, that was uh, new to me when I first met Richard and Mickey was I'm not a psychologist, although I did like psychology in college, but uh, I didn't learn a lot about how people respond and react. And one of the things I did learn is that, you know, we're hardwired. Our, our brains have evolved to a very, very high level over millions of years. Uh, and we're hardwired to uh, be able to perceive things quickly. The slow part of our ancestors didn't make it very long. So mm. what we've evolved from are the faster thinking, the quicker responses. The brain has, it has three primary parts that are part of this. There is the cortex, cerebral cortex. That's the part of your brain that uses logic, deductive reasoning, and that type of thing. It processes knowledge, but with some analytical component. Then there's the thalamus. And the thalamus is the other sensory input that takes information in from your surroundings. And then it does two things. It'll send it to the cortex for further processing but it also sends it to the amygdala. Uh, the amygdala is the part of the brain that makes the quick decisions. You've heard of the fight, flight, fl uh, flea Definitely. response? Okay, well that's kind of where it occurs. Uh, the amygdala puts a value on speed over accuracy. So it responds quickly. It will quickly look for what's called fast past matching. It looks for things that have happened before and says, ah, oh, this must be like that. It also perceives a social threat with the same degree of, of concern is the physical threat. So those are the things that, I think I'm answering your question backwards, what gets in the way of an authentic or quality conversation? It's kind of partly our, our natural DNA. It's our pre predisposition, our, our response. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the bias is that our life history is kind of, and our, and our experiences kind of cause us to develop biases. Those aren't always bad because it allows you to process things quickly, but the danger in doing that is you kind of miss the real intention uh, by the other party in the conversation. Yeah, you'd, uh, make, make yeah, you'd mentioned to us on a similar note that there are some actual physical cues that can be telltales of when someone's in that not prepared state for being in a place to accept learning and be open-minded. What are some of those cues? Great question, Lewis. And these things are going to happen. There's no way to uh, train yourself because it's it's a it's a it's a response that your body and your brain doesn't say don't do it. It just happens. The best we can do is to catch them quickly and then try to kind of slow the things down. So some of the physical cues. You think about an, a conversation that you're having and you start getting quote upset. Typically, then your heart rate goes up. Your breathing becomes a little shallow. You probably get a little tension in your neck. If somebody were looking at you, your, your pupils dilate a little bit. Those are, those are all biological responses, what we call bioreaction. Those are going to happen. You can't stop that. What you can do is make yourself aware that it's happening quickly. And don't let it kind of, don't let the, it, it kind of build upon itself. So just train yourself to, to look for those cues. And when you do, you take a deep breath. Then you ask a question that is not a yes or no response. So you're trying to find out what you're really seeking to do, Lewis, is to find out back, go back to their essential purpose. What is it they're here for? So they may say something that you kind of want to push back on, you know, and, and disagree. But I think we talked about this earlier. When you get pushback, it's time to get curious. 
find out why there's pushback and then kind of self-examine why am I having this response? What, what am I threatened by? Because all the things we talked about are, are responses to threats, social threats primarily, but they're mm -hmm. responses to threats. So mm -hmm. if you can simply get, you know, uh, I've been married 41, almost 42 years. And, and I know in the conversations I have with my wife, if there's a, if there's a certain way she phrases something or a certain word that gets used, I can feel it. Now, after 42 years, I catch it pretty quickly. I may stare at the floor. I may walk out of the room. I may do something else. But you get better at catching yourself. And, and that's how you can then redirect the conversation to something more productive. But one of the things that, that I love that, that Mickey and Richard did in their book is they use something called a conversation meter. And they, they say really all conversations can, can fall into one of four categories. We'll talk about them from the lowest quality conversation to the highest. And the lowest quality conversation is one that's in pretense. A pretense is when you want to avoid something, you're trying to eliminate something that's uncomfortable. You just kind of act like, you may act like you're going along with it and then walk out of the room and go, that was, that was crazy. But you're not giving somebody the benefit of, of letting them know your thoughts and emotions. The next step up from pretense is sincerity. Uh, sincerity is opinions masquerading as facts. So you've got some things in your head that you, you strongly believe in and you treat them as if they're facts. Sincerity means telling somebody, quote, what you really think. It almost always starts off with, you know, well, to be really honest with you. So really what you're saying is I'm not trying to engage in a dialogue here. I'm going to tell you what I think you need to hear. Well, that's better than, than, than pretense because at least something's coming out, right? So that's kind of step two. The third step up is accuracy. Now, accuracy shifts from explanations, you know, my thought about why that occurred, to actual facts. So that's an improvement. The downside of that is inaccuracy. You're generally trying to come up with facts that support your position. You've heard of confirmation bias? Yes. So, so, so you're looking for, you know, you're still looking for facts, but you still feel some need to defend your position. So you're not quite, your brain's not quite open to, to, to listening and learning. It's trying to logically put together information as to why you're right. Still better than the other two, but that's not quite exactly where we want to end up. The fourth one is what we call authenticity. And that's, that builds upon accuracy. And I'm open to facts and, and I'm trying to get away from the explanations. But in, in authenticity, you start looking for the intersection between your view, my view, and we accept that we may have different views. So you just think of two arrows kind of crossing together. And then within that intersection, there's the relevant facts. So if we can keep digging around and find out not where we differ, but where, where do we intersect? What are the things we really can, they call it the axiom of the intersection. Where can you find those things? And that's where learning occurs. Now to do that, and this is hard, but to do that, it, you have to give up the need to be correct for the chance to learn. Almost all of us, when we're talking or in a conversation, we're trying to make a point, there is this in, in, innate need to be correct. No one wants to be incorrect intentionally. So to get to the chance to learn, though, you have to sometimes just kind of put that aside and say, okay, I'll stop that. What can I learn here? And, and, you know, make this sound like it all happens in about, you know, three minutes and it doesn't. You know, a lot of this is based on the trust of the relationship. How long have you known this person? You know, how open and transparent can you be? But I've always kind of, I, I can sit around in any 
setting and put conversations into those categories. And nobody really wants to be in pretense. Sometimes you feel like you're, you're bullied or you have no real voice. And unfortunately, I think most of the social discourse in our country now and for some time now, which, which one of those four categories would you put it into? Opinions that are based on nothing. Sincerity, right? It would be the second level. You I need think, to hear I'm thinking you need to hear it. What's really interesting is that like all of this is happening in your brain. Like you were saying how the information gets processed through your brain, but you know, immediately upon uh, engaging in a conversation with somebody in front of you, your amygdala is deciding like how it's going to be or how you're going to respond. So you're kind of constrained by the other person just as much as you are by yourself about whether whether or not the conversation is going to be sincerity, accuracy, or authenticity. And I'm excited that this conversation has that, that pretense of all of us being willing and, and wanting to get to the point where we're learning from it. And, you know, this is, a, this is a safe space where we can all be wrong consistently. And I know that Lewis and I do that all the time. We're wrong all the time. But I guess stepping stepping back a bit, from having a good conversation into actually having a good conversation is some of your experience as CEO of Westervelt. So for our listeners, can you quickly explain what Westervelt, your company, uh, does? Or your, your company? Oh, yes, thank you. It's, it's still a company, just not, well, I now get my, my monthly check from them, so I want them to do well for a long time <laughs> to come. Quick uh, history of the company was formed in 1884. So it's 136 years old. It now has its fifth generation of ownership working at the company. If you've done any statistics, if you look at the number of family organizations that make it to the third generation, it's about 30%. That make it to a fourth generation, it's about 15%. And to make it beyond there, it gets down into the, into the slow single digits. So that in and of itself is, is rather remarkable. I attribute that to the fact that there's always been one decision maker with every generation that had voting control. So they would take the input and, and say, this is what we're going to do. There weren't a lot of strategic shifts along the way, but the Westerville Company has always been in the land, land resources, forestry, forest products. So there's always been that commonality from 1884 when they made butcher paper out of wheat straw up in Illinois to today, we're no longer in the, in the paper business or the packaging business, but we've got half a million acres of timberland. We've got building our second very, very large sawmills to make a lot of lumber. We've got an ecological services business that does mitigation banking, which protects critical habitat, whether it be water or species. We're probably one of the largest companies in this country that does that. So those, those are the things that I, what I always thought, you know, I worked for the company for 33 plus years. One of the reasons I think that we had such little turnover, and at one point we had 3,000 employees when I became the CEO in 2000. Today, it's probably closer to 700. But there's this sense of family, not that you're part of the family, but there is this perpetuation and a commitment to sustainability and doing the right thing. You know, one of our, our third generation chairmen and CEO used to say, we can make money doing a lot of different things. We can't go to sleep at night feeling good about those things unless it's what we want to do. So those are always the things that have guided us. So they may not have written down vision and values in the early 1900s, but they operated in much the same way 
leave the world a better place than when you found it, treat people fairly, invest in your communities. Is mostly, or can be attributed to the fact that it was a, a family run company. You know, one of your, your quotes that you sent to us was, you don't inherit the land, you uh, give it to the generations to come, or you're, you're borrowing it from the generations to come. So being, yeah. being focused on family really makes that an easy uh, decision to make, to, to want to make the world better, because if it is better and your company's doing better, then your kids will have better lives. But, so we want to focus mostly on your time as CEO, but I mean, you're with the company from 1981 to 2017. It's a long time. So can you walk us through just quickly, like your, your ladder up the company? Okay. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. We can talk about that as well. So I finished, let me, let me step back before I joined the company. So I finished undergraduate school and my wife and I got married when we were both in college, New Year's Eve, 1978. And against everybody's advice, you know, that you shouldn't do this. You're too young. Well, anyway, we did. So I finished school, she was a year younger, and then uh, I was attending bar, which I one of my favorite all-time jobs, because it's such a psychologist workshop. I mean, I love just getting to read people, know people, and it kind of makes you good at everything that you're all talking about doing. You, you learn how to have conversations, how to listen, know when to shut up, when, when to say something. So anyway, I had another year to go, so I, went, I got my master's here. So I've got an undergrad in marketing, I've got a master's degree in marketing, you know, I started off at business school in accounting. My, my father got his MBA in accounting. And for some reason, I thought well, I should get an, I should get an uh, accounting degree. And I got the intermediate accounting. I don't know if it's still the tough course that it was way back then, but that's when they separated the people that wanted to be accountants from the people that were just kind of sampling the course. So uh, I decided that wasn't for me. I enjoyed psychology, but didn't really think I could see myself making a living at that, knowing that, you know, I was, I was married. Uh, so marketing to me was the perfect blend of those things. You know, marketing has some hard components to it and some soft components to it. So anyway, I've always enjoyed marketing. I was in school back when Barry Mason was still in the classroom and a guy named Morris Mayer, who y'all don't have the opportunity to know, but Morris was a, a legend in retail marketing. So did all those things, finished in 1981. A, a guy that I attended bar with, his father, worked at Gulf States Paper. I uh, didn't know who he was, uh, but I knew he had a pretty good job because he lived in North River. So I was interviewing with some other companies. I was, uh, I really wanted to be a uh, brand manager at Procter & Gamble. That was my dream job because that was just kind of, a, I thought, a cool thing to do. But anyway, I interviewed at, at Gulf States Paper. Turned out his father was an executive vice president that ran a division, and I was fortunate enough to get hired to go to work in that division. So I spent my first four years in sales, just out on the road, uh, calling on people, trying to, you know, we made... I was in the packaging division, so specifically the group I was with, we made food service packaging. So if somebody fries chicken and puts it in a box, we probably made that box. We were doing business with KFC and churches and Popeyes, and we did had a big account at Disney World was a big account at one point in time. So that was, I enjoyed, you know, the, the sales cycle was long. You know, you didn't walk in and say, I got a product, buy it. You try to find out what their needs are. You solve problems. You use your internal resources. You do those things. So that was wonderful. Love that. About that time, our two children, 84 and 86, were born. And I'll go ahead and, and kind of say, and then I decided to do something different. I had some friends from college that were in the investment banking business. They were selling bonds. A big operation in Birmingham. It was called Central Bank of the South then. Now I think it's BB, BBVA, but they had a huge trading operation. And I was just fascinated 
with the financial side. And this were the, these were bonds we're selling primarily government agency securities to insurance companies, SNLs, and, and banks. So I did that for close to three years and, and traveled a lot. But like everything, it goes into a cycle. And being on straight commission is always, that'll get you up in the morning. But also then having a family that was starting to grow a little bit, I was kind of thinking about, well, a little bit more of a steady, predictable future would, would be okay. And when, when, when I'd stayed in touch with some of my contacts at Gulf State's paper and went back to work there in 88. And oddly enough, I went to work in a purchasing position, which is the exact opposite of what I had done in, in the sales side. So uh, I was working in, again for the packaging division and I was buying raw materials and equipment and supplies for five carton plants scattered across the whole country. So that was great because I got a chance to learn what the other side was like. So when I eventually got back into the sales side, I had sat in that purchasing manager's position and understand the things that drove their decision makers, the things that they were concerned about and the things that they were scared about. So did that for a couple of uh, three or four years. And then in another division, I had a chance to go in as a marketing manager. At that time, Jack Warner was still very much running the company. We had three major divisions. One made pulp and paperboard, and that was in Demopolis, Alabama. Those are big, expensive mills at probably $500 million to a $1 billion capitalization. So big operation. And then we had seven or eight folding carton plants. And then we had the Woodlands part which at that time was about 300,000 acres. So got a chance to do that. I was being groomed to be a sales manager. And unfortunately for him, the guy that I was working for that was going to retire in two years, uh, contracted or uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and passed away in about three months. So I got shoved into that job pretty quickly. Again, back out on the road, you know, I'll bless my wife. I felt like she raised the kids and did that for about three years. And then at that time, Jack really wanted to build another machine in the Mopolis. And that's, as I just said, that had been about a $500 million investment. One of the first rules at Westerville, previously Gulf States, was keep this a family-owned, privately held company. So never take a risk that if you're wrong, the banks or somebody else owns the company. Because we wanted to perpetuate it. We had a generational time horizon when we made decisions. So our goal was to perpetuate this generation to generation doing these kind of things. So like I said, Jack was really interested in putting it on the machine. Uh, I was told my job was to convince him that that was not a good decision. So I spent about a year and a half in a strategy and planning role for the company, pulling together the data. And then when I convinced him that we couldn't spend the money on the machine, I had some contacts in the industry, and we ended up doing a joint venture with a company that was called Georgia Pacific. They were a very large, publicly traded company, and they had kind of almost gotten out of that business. They had one machine left, and it was an encore business for them, so we developed a joint venture. So we got all the benefits of a second machine. We got to run efficiencies across two machines. We took one competitor out of the market because we did all the marketing for it. And both owners of the companies would tell you it was a real win-win for everybody. So we got all the benefits of growth without a $500 million investment. So that worked out quite well. I guess because that worked out quite well, they said, once we put the joint venture together, my boss says, 
well, good. That was such a wonderfully elegant decision and so intelligent. Now go do it. So I had to go run that business for about uh, three and a half, four years. And it's just a marketing guy going into a paper mill, which is like a chemical plant and an energy plant all together, filled with engineers. So I was once again, you gotta have to, you have to know what you don't know. And I realized that you know to make intelligent decisions and the right investments, I had to learn a little engineering. So I had a couple guys that would kind of take me aside and kind of teach me engineering one-on-one enough to be able to make decisions. That business ran well. We were we made good money. And it was a time for my, Ed Woods was his name. When Ed's time to retire came up, there were three executive vice presidents. I was the youngest. I was 43 at the time. Didn't really expect it. I think one of the questions you asked me once was, when did you know that you were going to get to be the president? And I would say, I knew about one day before a board board meeting. I was on the board at the time. I joined the board in 95. And uh, my boss said, oh, by the way, we're going to be talking about this at the board meeting and you're going to be the next CEO. And I was just floored because <laughs> didn't expect it. Uh, and I think one of the other two people that expected it didn't like it. So that was another thing about how to have an authentic conversation because now my peer became somebody that reported to me. Uh, but I learned a lot from that. So, so I became the president and CEO in 2000. And then we had a major sale in 2005. Uh, we sold off. We knew that we were going to have to recapitalize that mill at some point in time. We knew that we didn't want to take the risk of, of borrowing too much money. So we sold that business and the packaging business, which took the product we made at the mill and converted it into packaging to uh, what was then Rock 10. It's public. It was a $540 million transaction. They're a public company. We were a private company. That was hard because it's one of those things where people ask you what's going on and you can't say anything about it because we're not positioned to say anything about it. So we got through that. We end up 90% of the people that work in those businesses were offered jobs with Rock 10. That was part of what, why that mattered to us. And then we took the proceeds and started you know, growing the timber side of the business. And then we developed the uh, ecological services business. So our intention was within 10 years uh, to make it much easier for the family to perpetuate it, you know, as a private company. So we don't have have a lot of volatility. We don't have a lot of risk. We've got a lot of appreciating assets as part of the base. So it's been, you know, I I look back to the the history of the company and they've kind of kept doing those things. You know, one time we were in the paper bag business and then plastics came along and kind of made it obsolete. We shifted to the packaging business. And then with the cost of capital and then the, and the, the, the money required to, to stay in that business exceeded our comfort level. We shifted it into more growing, appreciating assets. So like I said, today we've got 500,000 acres of, of timberland. We've got uh, 40,000 acres in New Zealand. We've got about 25,000 acres in long-term conservation easements for this for mitigation banking business. So I think we've achieved a, a really balanced uh, portfolio of businesses that attracts high quality people. I definitely want to come back to the idea of pivoting and finding the profits in uh, a vertically integrated company like Westervelt. But I want to ask a quick Mm -hmm. question about what it was like for you to be the CEO of a company whose vision is specifically to perpetuate itself as a family owned company. And you being someone who wasn't a part of the family, but you had sole voting power to make decisions within it. 
what was that like to to not be a part of the family but to be making decisions yeah. directly for the family yeah let me i'll clarify i did not have the sole uh voting power uh every that was always a family member uh, and i think that's one of the things that that perpetuated the company jack warner's mother was mildred warner and she was the CEO, if you will, when they built the mill in Tuscaloosa in the late 20s. And that's when they started buying some timberlands. And then she passed that along to her son, Jack Warner, in about 57 or 58. And he accelerated the purchasing of timberlands and, uh, and then got us into the packaging business. And then his son, John Warner, I think John became C chairman and majority shareholder. That's the distinction. It's just who owns the voting stock in like the late 90s. And then John, who's early 70s, semi-retired, spends a lot of time in New Zealand. But one of his children, he's got three children, will likely give him the voting control of the company. So you always had that thread that ran through all that. Now, for, for me, you know, we were, the management was expected to go out and execute on our business plans. So we typically, I saw, other than the shareholders that live locally, and we had Kyle Gosh, at one point, about 65 shareholders, all family members. So there weren't a gazillion of them, and a lot of them live, live locally. So we would have annual shareholders meetings, and they would all kind of pile in there and you know, ask a bunch of questions. And, uh, you know, for the most part, they, 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 as long as we kept them informed, nobody really took an exception over, you know, I don't think we were anything controversial. You know, we didn't go into something that, that, was, uh, that, was, that challenged somebody's values. Now, did they all agree about, you know, do we need another meal or do we need one of these things? No, but they, they weren't in that business. So we, we, one of the things that was um, a change, when I got on the board of directors in the mid-90s, we had maybe 15 board members. We had a lot of managers that worked at the companies. The executive vice presidents were on the board. Um, we had a, a lot of family members on the board. And we'd have two or three outside, if you will, directors that were independent. When I retired, that number was down to seven board members, five outside directors, the CEO, and the chairman. And that was a much more functioning board because it was easier to have those conversations and they were all experienced in board governance, the kind of things the board should and shouldn't do. You know, it was, I was lucky. I had some fabulous board members that I learned a lot from their experience. You know, their, their, their uh, motto was, we can look, but don't touch. So they would give us advice, but they never kind of got down into the weeds of trying to tell you how to, how to run a company. Uh, so I was very grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. Did I answer your question? Uh, no, okay. yeah, you did. And I think it's great. I, I want to come back though to the vertically integrated profits question. So uh, what I'm asking basically is with a company like Westervelt, from your own words, it's, it's woods to goods. You've got everything from the land and the trees and the processes all the way through to let's say paper bags. How did you go about your, your decision-making when trying to find where exactly you could maximize, maximize the profits in that chain of things? Cause you could sell it at any point. You could sell it as wood. You could sell it as, as paper bags. You right. Know? right. Uh, great question, Kyle. And, and um, you know, it's the woods, the goods was actually in the, 40s and 50s that was a company motto that was pub that was printed on a lot of our logos uh, and that was kind of jack always was fond of saying woods to goods so I, I think that there was a comfort level of being able to control the steps in processing 
so you know if you own the land you didn't you'd have to own you know we we probably at the Demopolis mill we sourced 60% of our wood internally and 40% externally so we were never totally integrated but enough mm-hmm. to control it and that was kind of the issue is we wanted to be able to control the quality remove some of the transaction costs from dealing with third parties and in in where that value is is captured can shift through time and it can shift in market cycles there are times when it's the people that that have the trees you know that's the they call it on the stump so the people that own that they're the ones that make the money they're a high component of the of the overall cost down the road so we'll use that as an example we grow the trees we grow southern yellow pine which is because this is what grows best here we've now gotten that growth cycle from 45 years down to 25 years by better genetics, better silvicultural wow. practices. We can grow better trees. Well, we thought, well, if we're doing that to capture the value of those trees, we need to process those logs. So we built a sawmill that is full of, uh, of uh, automation and, and optical. We, every log that goes on the log deck gets scanned. And within a second, it will tell saws later on in the process how to cut that log based on the selling prices of all the types of lumber you could cut out of that log that's how precise it is now you could we could change the prices throughout the day if we wanted to we don't we usually change them about once a week so it's it's capturing the value uh for us and for our customers and let's say that, that can shift if we if we wanted to we could actually we looked at it one of the things that happens to lumber in the South, primarily if it's dimensional lumber, I'm sorry, with structural lumber, which is kind of the, the walls holding up the, the, the structure, is a lot of that gets treated, chemically treated, pressure treated. Southern, Great Southern, if you'll, you know, the Yellow Man, you've seen those commercials, and Yellowwood. they're a big player in that market. You know, Yellowwood. So we thought about, well, that's one extension of, of, of going downstream and, and Turned out there was a lot of complications to it that we didn't particularly like. So I think the integration model is one that's always been comfortable. When we, in the mid-2004 or five, about the time we made the divestiture of those two businesses, we were looking at after we paid our taxes and after we paid a nice dividend to our shareholders, you know, we had money left over, a fair amount of money left over. What do we do with it? So one of the things was, let's just increase our, our footprint and buy more timberland. Well, where do we buy it? You know, so we went through a very intentional, thorough process. We actually did a process. We looked around the entire world and said, where's the best place to buy? Where do we want to own timberland 50 years from now, 100 years from now? We ended up with some in New Zealand for some different reasons, but it was through that process of saying, you know, this might be a place we want to be in 50 years. Uh, We made that investment. And then we, you know, we bought more timberland here. But so you got the vertical integration. There's also a horizontal component to it. And we were, I had a friend that was a CFO of EBSCO Industries in Birmingham back then, his name Rick Bozzelli, and got to know him through a bunch of things we were looking at doing perhaps together, and they were looking at a lot of deals. He called me one day and said, hey, we've got this deal that's at my desk, it doesn't fit us, it's, it's about uh, mitigation banking and it involves owning land for long, it's a long-term commitment to land, we just don't do that. So I took it, looked at it, went out talked to the guys that were going to sell it. One thing led to another. We didn't buy that company. But some of their key people left and started their own company. And that's how we started West of Ecological Services. It's a long-term use of land. 
and you can still, in some of those circumstances, you can still manage timber. So our, our, our profit model we talked about internally was called revenue stacking. How many streams of revenue can we stack on a given acre of land? So we've got timberland, we get revenue from the thinnings, which happens at about year 15 or 16, and from the final harvest. You've got uh, recreational lease income. 95% of the land that we own in Alabama, we also generate, we rent it to hunting camps. So that's, it's consistent with growing timber. That's another stream of revenue. Some of that land has coal bed gas and, or coal on it. That can be consistent with, you know, depending on how it's done. So we looked at the ways we can maximize the stream. So if you look at our land base is this is where we start. Then from there, what can you do with it? So you try to get the streams of revenue per acre. We always we measure that. Dollars of revenue per acre and the different ways to generate that. And then from there, you start going downstream. You can probably see my dog is demanding my attention. So I've got a 13-year-old English setter, English pointer, and a 12-year-old English setter. Go away. Okay, so that's, that's the, the, the model was you know, trying to stay within that, but also looking at the edges. So Jack Warner always encouraged us to try things. And, and I'll tell you about some things we tried that didn't work very well, and you know, what do you learn from that? But, you know, he was always looking for adjacencies. So it had to be somewhat related but it wouldn't have to be directly related. It was like, if you're here, you might want to think about here. We tried things like, we bought a, a company that made folding cartons, and they also had a business that made Chinese pails. We didn't know anything about the pails. We didn't even know they were part of the company until we got to you know, doing our due diligence. Didn't really want it, but the guy says, yeah, we're, you know, this is, you ought to take this. It's simple stuff. You know, we thought, it's a really simple product to make. You should probably do it in your garage most profitable business we were ever in. It's a distribution business. It's not about how well you make the product. It's how do you get a box of Chinese pills at every Chinese restaurant in the country. So that was kind of interesting to learn that. We started a business. We were doing some work where we were looking at buying some timberland. We'll talk about that perhaps later. And there are a couple of ways to assess the timberland. A lot of it is you send a forester out and they simply walk it and they do sampling. And they give us an idea about the site quality, how good is the soil, that's called the site index, the stocking level, which is how many trees per acre, and are they healthy trees, they're not healthy trees. Well, that's okay if you're buying 1,000, 2,000 acres. In 2005, when we had $100 million to put into timberland, and we wouldn't look at things that were 20,000, 30,000 or more acres, that was problematic. Well, there was a company, Landwork, that they did it through satellite imaging. Smart guys, mostly PhDs out of Chicago, and we were just really you know, impressed with, so they could do that, take satellite shots, can tell you when a, when a stand of trees is being stressed because of heat or weather. So we met these guys, and like I said, I, I was impressed with them, and, and well, what else can you do? And so we, we ended up buying their company, two guys that formed the company. Well, within about three or four years, the, the number of timberland transactions started to really slow down. We're thinking, well, what are we going to do with this? Well, we said, what else? Who else needs this kind of information? Crop forecasting. So we started, the, we grew the company at a point, sold it to Bloomberg after about, we owned it about five years. And they did crop forecasting. And we sold, our, our, our clients were Archer, Daniels, Midland, Cargill. We did crop forecasting around the world palm in Malaysia, wheat in Russia, because you could do it from Chicago if you had the data. You may say, well, then why on earth did you sell it? 
we weren't big enough to scale it. They need to be part of something even bigger. So but that was an interesting, was it related? Well, initially it was related because they did Timberland you know, uh, evaluations. Well, then it, it, the technology took them in another direction. There was a lot to, to get into there. And I really appreciate everything you just shared with us about the company. I'm having a hard time just summarizing it and taking it all in. There was such a interesting progression just from the very beginning, how you started there and ultimately the decision-making process and the thinking you had along the way uh, and some of those cool specific stories about the different business segments and the different innovations and realizations you brought in along the way. I especially was really drawn to the idea of the generational timeline for decision-making. Something that really stuck out to me was talk, you know, you just said this, but where do we want to own uh, Timberland 50 years from now? I think that long-term thinking is one of the great advantages you all had. And that's something that Kyle and I hardly see in the world anymore. And everyone's acting on and part of this could be due to technology and the iterative cycles and how things move so much faster. But I mean, even nationally and in other companies, people are thinking in the timescales of like one year, five years, how fast can we move this along? And the way you're talking about maximizing opportunities for generations to come. And I think that's probably influenced by the fact that they're people, the business is kept in the family and wants to move on. But what I really want to highlight is like the thought process you, you showed along the way, how you were open-minded to new opportunities, the kind of logical and well-organized approach you took to the different business segments, maximizing the existing segments, being open to new ones. Uh, and it also really, really showed through the detail work how you learn the granular details of every one of those different places from the extreme specifics about the trees and the equipment and the like complications. Uh, and that's kind of what I want to get into a little bit more now. We kind of section this in our outline as the philosophy segment, which is going over some of the stuff you shared about mental models, habits, biases, and that's kind of what I want to focus on now. So starting off with mental models, the first question is that you gave a lot of stories about new segments. Uh, what are some of those mental models you used when evaluating those new opportunities? Yeah, great question. I mean, well, obviously, we had a process of strategic you know, planning. That, was, that happened at the board level. You know, we would kind of understand where we were and then the direction we're going to be looking at. And, and that theirs was more of a long-term plan, you know, five to 10-year cycles. Now, one of the benefits of not being a public company is we don't have quarterly earnings releases. You know, we've got monthly P&Ls, but we, so we still have to be accountable for that. But, you know, we don't have to, if you try something new or you try a, a strategic shift, you don't have to be right immediately. Because uh, sometimes part of your thought process is this is going to take some time to, to generate the critical mass to become profitable. As long as we thought we could get there. So we always ask ourselves the question, Lewis, do we have the core competency or can we acquire it? So there's three core competencies that we felt like, you know, that we were exceptional about. One is, is managing timberlands in the Southeast U.S. We've been doing that for, oh, 70, 80 years. We go all the way back to, you know, we generate our own seedlings. We have a nursery not far from Tuscaloosa, and we'll grow six to seven million seedlings a year. We're in some genetic testing programs with different universities. NC State is one that's done a lot of work there. Virginia Tech has done a lot of work on improving the quality of the seedlings, making them more bug resistant, you know, you know positive qualities. They're, they're, not, they're not Frankenstein trees. They're, they're, you know, we're just genetically enhancing through natural techniques, selective uh, breeding, if you will, which can be done at a nursery level. So, you know, that's part of how our model for making those decisions is to, to, to understand the science behind it. So that's part of the strategic planning process. And we would have, with my management team, the leadership team, we would meet four times a year. 
uh, once was an extended couple of days. And we just did a lot of what if, you know, okay, what's, what are you guys seeing and hearing that, you know, that maybe we ought to be considering. And then, you know, that's, we had to have honest conversations. So that conversation meter was a mental model about how do you, everybody's got to be comfortable to speak up and, and willing to, you know, stand behind something and be, account, be accountable for it. So, you know, inversion is, is taking something from the back end to the, to the forward end. There might be some, some things that we didn't quite understand that would take them from, well, here's the outcome. You go backwards. What are all the assumptions that, that, that are underlying, underlying that that you've got to believe in? And can you believe in those things? Like I said, the three things we – I skipped over. So three things we did we thought were our core competencies was managing timberland for in the southeast U.S. The next one was converting southern yellow pine timber into high-quality solid wood products. We ran a sawmill. We ran it very, very well. And then the third one was managing lands for biodiversity and sustainability. We like said we've got about 25,000 acres that once you put something uh, into a conservation easement, which is the, the definition of how you perpetuate it for forevermore, that is a legal commitment. You've got to provide for the funding for whatever that land is, for whatever that purpose is, in perpetuity. And so... We've gotten very, very good at, at learning those things. So if we look at something that doesn't exactly fit into that, but we can make an acquisition in which you buy the intelligence, the land worth uh, acquisition is a good one. We didn't have the, 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 the intelligence and the focus that, that those guys were doing, uh, doing the satellite imaging and taking that data and making you know, business decisions. But we invested in two people that could bring that core competency. They did that. So. I think that's, I'm not sure I'm getting to the, to the right mental models. You know, there's this thing called the tragedy of the commons, and that is in a system where there's a shared resource that no one's really responsible for. Then through time, that shared re resource is generally depleted. So we look at our opportunities in the mitigation banking business was just that. Had we not created these banks, these species may become extinct. Well, if we can provide the right habitat, and provide a home for these endangered species. When someone wants to build on a piece of land anywhere, whether it's a road or an airport or Walmart, they've got to do an environmental impact study. Well, if they're in an area that has an endangered species, they have to mitigate that. And one of the ways they can mitigate it is they go out and buy land and create that habitat, which will take you five to seven years, or they come to a, a bank that's, that's authorized like we are, and they buy the credits from us. So we, it's a win-win. The developer gets quick access and, and, and ready authority to move forward. We even turn in time, in addition to that, you know, we have put this land aside. Uh, most of the land that we've got in, in easements now are land that we didn't own. We bought it for a specific purpose. It was bought, maybe it was cattle land or farm land or something else. It wouldn't necessarily timber land. Although we've so, got some of that as, as well. So, as a mitigation yeah. bank, you're giving out the capital in, in the form of an easement. So like if I'm a developer and I'm building a building a big residential community, but I don't have enough mm -hmm. land to appease the environmental council in my city, I, I can come to you and buy credits of easement. Correct. And, th and that severs, as a, as a developer, that severs your legal liability. So let's just say that you're doing a development project in Tuscaloosa and you do the, the environmental impact and you found out there's some wetlands on that property. 
you either can not develop it, which is probably not what you want to do. Uh, you can try to go buy other property and it's not just saving the wetlands. You've got to create new. Mm. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a zero net impact. You can't just set it aside and say, I won't do anything with it. You've got to create new wetlands. Well, that's not your business. It's, it's cumbersome and it's front end loaded with capital. We'll go in and, and let's say that your project needed 20 acres. Well, that's just, that's a hard thing to maintain through time. If you got to do it forever, we'll build a thousand acre bank and it will be a wetlands bank or it'd be a streamside impact bank. And then we get allocated through the, either the uh, Corps of Engineers or it could be Fish and Wildlife or other people, if it's a species or if it's water base, a certain number of credits that we can sell. And then we set the, the price in the market. In, in the wetlands, for instance, you've got to be in the same basin, the same water basin, stream basin, as your, where your impact is, or you pay a penalty. You can buy it outside your area, but you pay a penalty for that. It's a fascinating business. Yeah, that's something that I've never, ever heard of or, or come into like contact with. That's really cool. Uh, thank you for explaining that. But stepping back a sure. little bit so that, from your yeah. like really hard knowledge into something that all of us currently are trying to wrap our brains around and no one really understands, what mental models are you applying today to understand the current state of the world with coronavirus and the protests and the political polarization and all of these things how are you how are you thinking about the world that's a great question and that's i listen to a lot of podcasts on the knowledge project which i've told you about it's a shane parish from farnham street it's fantastic I, that's one of my favorites i started on that a couple of years ago and i just really don't miss it you know and i like Mal- malcolm Gladwell's another uh, guy that I listen to. But anyway, in, in that one, he's the one that got me started thinking about mental models. He's, he's since published, self-published two books that have a listing of them. He's got 109 listed. He's published two books that have covered about 60. So we've got more to go. But to answer your question, one of the ones that I, I, this catches my, my, my attention and my sense of humor is called Hanlon's Razor. Now you've heard of Occam's Razor, yes. uh, which is a, a simpler explanations are more likely to be true than complicated ones makes perfect sense. Well, there's a follow-up called Hanlon's Razor, and it says, we should not attribute to malice that which is more easily explained by stupidity. So to answer your question about what mental models do I apply in today's environment, I, I, I think a lot of the things that people say and do, I have to believe it's more of ignorance than it is malice. It can seem very hurtful. It can seem, you know, uh, very painful, very directed at a, a segment of, of the population. And I just, I, I believe that it's probably ba- more based on, he calls it stupidity, I would call it ignorance. So that's one. It's just trying to, you know, understand how people think. Probabilistic thinking is, is one that, you know, to your question, Lewis, which ones do we apply? Well, you use logic and probability and, and statistics to determine what's the likely outcome. So as I've been following the, the corona, the COVID-19 outbreak from day one, and, and Johns Hopkins has got this wonderful grid that shows where the populate where the outbreaks are around the world just trying to understand when people say well it's here and it can go to here you know what's the likelihood you know and which is the bigger era it's not that bad or it's worse than we thought so i read something every day and sometimes one thing conflicts with another but i think that you just you you pull together the data you decide for yourself what are the reliable sources and which are the ones that just don't hold together very well. And I'm, I'm a data-driven. That was one of the things we talked about at our company was we made data-driven decisions. 
somebody would say something and you'd say, is that your opinion or do you have data to back it up? Now we're not trying to be snarky about it. We're simply saying, is that data driven? And once you kind of push yourself to be, go away from your opinions and things that you, you know, things I read on the internet, which must be true, you say, where's that data come from? And then even there, the whole thing with fake news, that's such an abused term, I even hate using it. But you've got to be careful, you know, you've got to do enough of your own due diligence and investigation to decide, is that a good source of data? Uh, and is it, is it used correctly? Is it the right context? Is it the right time period? So I don't know if those are mental models, but it's, you know, I think don't jump to the first conclusion. And that's kind of a bias that we have is the first thing that pops in your mind must be the right thing. So I probably more focused on understanding my cognitive biases and trying to avoid those because we all have them. Uh, and sometimes they serve you well, most of the time they don't. And just being, being, being aware of those things. Uh, and, you know, I found out when I'm somebody saying something that irritates me, I'm probably best just to be quiet, stay irritated and listen. And then try to ask the good question about, you know, well, what makes you feel that way? Or, 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 you know, where did you, where did you get that information? And, and you can do that. And you guys are do it, good at this because you interview people. You can challenge someone without insulting someone. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the discourse that goes on, you know, in the political arena today is not that way. But I think that there's a way that we learn by, so tell me more about that. You know, what led you to that conclusion? So I, I don't know. It's not a good answer as to about which mental model that I use. I mean, there's, there's so many of them. You know, Butterfly Effect is one. And there was a great book, uh, got the guy that wrote that, Rick, Rick, somebody, that says small changes in the initial conditions can have massive downstream impacts. So it's the idea of if a butterfly in England flaps his wings, could it cause a hurricane in, in Indonesia? And it's like this leads to this leads to this. this. So I think we've got to be careful about, you know, Sometimes we're trying to find solutions to existing problems, to be careful that, that the law of unintended consequences doesn't step in and say, you get the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. I, I can't tell you the number of times I thought I was doing it, helping someone, and it had the exact opposite impact. And you didn't see it coming. You know, you thought, okay, well, this is going to be helpful, and you know, I'm going to do this for them. And and sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. And I think that's a really interesting commentary on the different mental models you're using right now. And it's, it's tough. It's one of those things, you know, I also am a big fan of Shane Parrish, Farnham Street, The Knowledge Project, and just being aware of them uh, and knowing that they exist can be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily mean they've immediately kind of been implemented into your thinking and they're augmenting your decision-making, just that you're aware of them. And I think the same is true for cognitive biases. You've clearly also studied those and cataloged some, but my question is how do you, you know, take that awareness of what they are and like an intellectual understanding of what they are and what they imply into actually structuring your decision-making in a way that overcomes a lot of the common ones. That's a, I always had a great answer. That's a great question, Lewis. I'm not sure that I've got a great answer uh, other than just trying to learn from your mistakes. You know, I, I've, I've had, I can think back to when I was working and we'd have a meeting and there was, you know, it, it's, uh, we didn't accomplish the purpose of the meeting. It kind of broke down into you know, you know, I think this, I think that, and, and it just, it's not going anywhere. And I go back to my office thinking, you know, that could have had a better outcome. What could I have done? And with the time to think about it, you kind of come up with, okay, well, if this happens again, I'm going to ask this question, or, or we're going to put this person, you know, give them the responsibility to explain that. So that's, you know, I don't know. That's uh, how would you answer that question? Yeah, it's a tough question. Cause I mean, it's, I think that's the core question for people that read books like, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, because that's been recommended by numerous guests. 
and you know they talk about confirmation bias is fairly easy to i wouldn't say fairly that's like a common one that everyone brings up and i actually had i read a really interesting book that gave a interesting perspective on how to overcome that in research by like building arguments bottom up which is kind of like only structuring an opinion or only structuring it's basically like gathering evidence and forming a hypothesis based on the evidence instead of like the scientific method, which is form a hypothesis and then try to build an experiment that proves it. And I think that is like a natural situation that lends itself to the confirmation bias. And I think using the internet for research only amplifies when that, that situation. Whereas if you know, you just read a bunch of books out of straight curiosity and you take detailed notes about the ideas that come to you. uh, And then at that point you look back on the notes you have and the ideas you've put together, then you come out with a more unbiased thought. But I think that's a very, that's only an answer to one cognitive bias, right? And the answer might be that you have to kind of structure systems like that and research processes and decision processes to accompany any other cognitive bias that you think of. So whether it's like, I think anchoring is another cognitive bias, right? Where, you know, when someone mentions a number to you, you all of a sudden become tied to their number. That one, there's you right. probably have to also come up with a way to like almost refresh your, like your memory to like get their thought out of your head. And maybe the answer to that one is that the only way to overcome that is that you give the number first and you control that cognitive bias. Right. So I think the answer is uh, you have to actually step one is cataloging them. And then it's probably step two is cataloging remedies to them. Cause you can't just say, okay, I'm making a decision. This is like the very like Charlie Munger esque idea, right? It's like, okay, I'm approached with the situation. Let me look at my list of mental models from Shane Parrish and Charlie Munger. Let me look at my list of cognitive biases from Kahneman and Tversky. And then I'm going to read that and make sure everything comes to, I like reach the optimal conclusion. And I'm not sure what that answer is, but I think that's, it's definitely an improvement to consult those resources in those situations, but I don't know how practical it is either. And that also might come with practice. So I agree. It's a long-winded answer to a tough question, but it's my fault for asking. No, it's, it. no. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a great question. And, and um, I, I think uh, some of them like reciprocity, you know, that, that's the, uh, um, that's part of maybe more of a mental model is, is it because you, you talked about the anchoring. So, so reciprocity means if I do something for you, no matter how small, and then I ask a favor of you, you kind of feel compelled to respond uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in a positive way. So there are a lot of these things that are kind of in sales one-on-one. You can look up and say, here's how they manipulate you. Those are kind of things that just to be aware of, uh, that, that you have these cognitive biases, or they were just human biases that, that draw us toward what the society accepts or expect. And just be aware of that. You know, we tend to think that, you know, we see something, uh, a bad outcome for someone else as a poor decision-making, but the same bad outcome for us was, well, these were things beyond my control. Or circumstances. So, yeah, circumstances. So, well, it really wasn't my fault. We tend to think we know what other people are thinking. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking with Strangers, if you've not read that, it's just a phenomenal, it's his latest book. And it's, it's kind of talks about that is part of our problem is we already think we know what they mean. And we think we're good at processing. We probably put a premium on being able to read people quick and, and kind of coming to the right answer. And that just takes us in the wrong direction. So I, I think one of them that kind of comes forward is if you listen to someone talk and they say things that you believe in, for me, my opinion of them as being intelligent goes way up because they're saying things that I would have said anyway. So we, he's, he's a smart guy. So when I find myself kind of leaning in that, you know, I'm agreeing with everything they say, I have to kind of step back to say, why do I think what they're saying is right? Because I believe the same thing. 
So those little things you kind of catch yourself doing. Uh, we tend to think that, you know, we try harder than other people. The other thing I know that happens is that we tend to rewrite our recall, our memory of things that happened. That's one of the things that Malcolm, Malcolm talks about in that book is that there are actual events that take place. And then years go by and your memory, and you're certain of this, I mean, you're not a little fuzzy on it. Well, I remember specifically this, those things get changed depending on the experience. Was it a good experience or a bad experience? And the bad ones tend to get rewritten through time. It's, it's part of this perception. You know, it's, you know, if, if five people look at the same crime and the interview five eyewitnesses, they can give you five different answers as to what happened. It's because their perception is different. So I'm, I'm conscious of perceptions. I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, and that's probably because I'm almost 63, that your memory fades. But I've seen that happen to people that are in their 20s that, you know, that wasn't what happened at all, but that's what you remembered. So those are the kind of things just to catch yourself from making those, you can catch yourself if you if you work at it. I think that and catching yourself, I think that catching yourself, Sorry. If you're fortunate and you're married 41 years, you have someone who will catch them for you. Yeah. Well, we're not there yet, but maybe <laughs> one day. <laughs> um, but stepping back um, and catching your biases is a habit. And that's one thing that we also wanted to get into is, is your framework of habits versus goals. You actually really had a profound impact on me last year when you came and spoke to the Academy because you said that early on in your career, you had a mentor who asked you what your goals were and you said, I don't know. And then I think the rest of the story goes, he, he just like sent you away or something like that. But <laughs> you know, that inspired me to start to create my own goals and you know, it really affected me. But I just wanted to know what, what is the difference between habits and goals to you? Okay. And obviously they're both important. Uh, and I think the, the story I was telling you about was a, an early mentor. He said, you know, every year I, I go on vacation and I'll take a day, you know, whether it's at the mountains or the beach and I, I take out my little, you know, it's, it's not a, well, it's just something he keeps his thoughts in and uh, it's not a diary per se. But, and I look at my goals for that year. What did I accomplish? What did, so he said, you know, goals will change as your situation changes, as your place in life changes. He said, but you've got to have goals. That gives you a target. So for me, the goal is the what. You know, what do I want to have accomplished? You know, I want to start my own business before I'm 25. They have to be specific. They've got to be measurable. They've got to be actionable. So you've got to be able to do all those things. Uh, so that's the what. The how part's the tough part, and that's, that's the tactical part, and those are the habits. You know, we will have good or bad habits. Good habits take you toward your goals. Bad habits take you away from them. You're going to have one or the other. You don't get to pick, I don't have any habits. Well, you don't have any habits, you're a procrastinator, and that's a habit. So the, you know, the James Clear book, Atomic Habits, I thought he did a good job of kind of describing the best way to build strong, positive habits and, and the best ways to kind of avoid the negative habits that come along. You know, you, you make it, you make it, you're, I believe in cues. I'm a visual person. And one of the things he says, make it visible. Your, your, your habit that you're trying to accomplish, whether it's taping it to my bathroom mirror that I see every morning or just somewhere where you can't ignore it. You know, that, that's one. You know, make it fun. Make it attractive to you. It's something I want to do. So everybody use the example, I want to lose 25 pounds. Although neither one of you guys could stand that. But if you want to lose weight, that could be a goal. 
but just because you want to lose weight, you could you could say, well, and I'll just I'll I'll eat less. I won't you know I'll give up beer and, and pretzels. Well, that requires self-discipline, and self-discipline sometimes runs out at the worst possible moment. So that's not the way you're going to accomplish it. But if you say, I'm going to you know I'm going to exercise for an hour each day. I'm going to go low on my carbs. You know, these are things that you can measure each and every day. Those are things that can get you to accomplish your goal. A goal will at some point become, you'll achieve it. I mean, I, my goal when I was in your shoes was to, you know, I want to get a job. I like, so I want to be a brand manager, but I want to be in the sales and marketing side. I, I enjoy the psychology of all that. When I joined Gulf States paper, as far as I could see at the org chart of me ever getting was going to be a uh, vice president of sales for one of the four divisions. We had three, excuse me, three divisions. That was as far as my vision could take me. And I wasn't quite sure, you know, if I would ever get there and would it take me 30 years to do it. So was that my goal? Yeah. Did I work on that every day? Not really, but I did develop good habits of constantly reading. I, used to, I remember I used to read the Harvard Business Review. I think it came out in hard copy form once a month. I, I did appreciate the fact that you don't stop learning when you finish college. You never do stop learning, you know. And so I had that. I can thank my, my parents for this intellectual curiosity. Both of my parents got their graduate degrees while I was in high school. So they kept where I used to see them at home studying at night while I was should have been at home studying at night. So, you know, I, I get that you know, naturally from them. But it's that, that commitment. To, you have to keep learning. So I always look for opportunities to be part of teams. I always no one outworked me. Um, I look for, you know, unique approaches to things, was willing to try things. Uh, and I was fortunate. I, I can't tell you, you know, I just gave you my history of I went from selling cartons to one day running the company. No part of that path said it, it takes you there. I just have to be in the right place, right time, with the right organization, with the right team around me. I was just very fortunate. Uh, it could have gone you know, a hundred other ways. Yeah, I think that whole discussion, I mean, I also really enjoy studying habits and it's really the idea of process over outcomes is the big signifying difference between yeah. the habits and goals, right? With goals, which are good to have as a signpost and for direction, they're very outcome driven. You know, it's very binary. You achieve the goal, you don't achieve the goal. Whereas habits are focusing on positive processes where that over time, if you follow them are moving you in the right direction. And then the reach and the goal is a side effect of having followed that process. And that's the real intended consequence of designing good habits. Another question we have for you, and you're sharing a few of your specific habits, you know, lifelong learning and reading and intellectual curiosity is morning routine. Cause I know that's a huge part of a lot of these books on habits is the morning routine. That's your first habits of the day. My question is what was your morning routine as CEO and how's that different from your morning routine now? Okay. Quickly think back. Well, the morning routine wasn't that different. Uh, Lewis, uh, you know, I got up, I, I get up at six o'clock, you know, when I was, uh, working, maybe it was five 30. But I've, my daughter left me with these dogs, left us these dogs when she moved to Dallas a long time ago. So I've had these dogs for about eight or nine years. So part of my morning routine is I get up, I take them now to the dog park uh, over here by Sokol Park, and we spend a half an hour walking around. That gets their exercise. I come back, I stretch, I make a protein shake or some, something like that for, for breakfast. I come back, turn on my computer. I get subscribed to Bloomberg and to the to uh, Wall Street Journal. So I read those first thing every morning, and then I'll you know I'll look through the blogs I like. And so I'll spend probably an hour sitting here, you know, doing those kind of things. And then I'll get up, and then I'll either 
go play tennis, uh, go hit on the ball machine, go play golf, I'll go hit golf balls. You know, it's at least two to three hours of, of physical exertion. I've got a treadmill I run on, I've got weights I can lift. So that's, but so now how it's different is I used to have to wait till I got home at night when I worked to do those physical things. It was hard to do, you know, early in the day. I get to read a lot more now. So yeah, the first part of my day, it's about the same. The last part of my day, I actually stay up later than I used to. I used to go to bed at nine because I would get up at, you know, at five or so, uh, five or five thirty. So I like the freedom of being, choosing how to spend that time. Uh, when I was working, it was hard for me to read a nonfiction book. I love historical novels. Now, you know, I, I, just, I had a bookshelf full of about 40 or 50 books that I had acquired through time that, you know, one day when I retire, mm -hmm. I'm going to read Atlas Shrugged. Have you, have you read Atlas Shrugged? I read The Fountainhead this year in February, yeah. which took me about that whole month to read. You know, this wasn't, I don't know when it was. I read it recently, maybe last summer actually, but and I have Atlas Shrugged next to it on my bookshelf in Tuscaloosa. So it's on, it's on the list. Why do we try to retire, Deb? It's, it's a great read, but it's, as you know, it's about 1,200 pages, and uh, it's not an easy read. But there are a lot of similarities between what uh, Ayn Rand was describing and kind of what's going on today. So, and I guess The Fountainhead was the, was the precursor to Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, The Fountainhead was her first novel, and then Atlas Shrugged was like considered the masterpiece. I don't know if Fountainhead was her first or not. First big novel. There's some other works in, in the mix. Right. Not an Ayn Rand expert, but I do have an Ayn Rand biography next to the Ayn Rand books, which I haven't read either. But. <laughs> well, you'll have to tell me about that one. I'm going to yeah. get to that one. Um, so, it, and the other thing I like, and Kyle knows this, uh, what I enjoy doing is, is I've got, I spend some time with a um, nonprofit board. I'm very engaged in our church, First Methodist, which is a big church downtown working with the University of West Alabama on some workforce development things in the Black Belt specifically, trying to, we've gotten some federal grants to, to do some specific training in, in that part of West Alabama, the Black Belt. So I, I have the time, I've got some experience to, to try to share the grades helpful, you know, share, here's what I've learned, didn't make it perfect, but and here are the mistakes I made and you can try to avoid these. What um, habits do you think are most important for people our age, like around 20, to adopt in order to to grow and learn and, and long-term be successful? Yeah, it's, uh, well, I would say both of you guys are successful, so what are your habits? <laughs> That's a good script flipping question. Well, I think Kyle and I have one very easy answer for that right now. It's a 75 day challenge with six habits that you have to maintain for that 75 days. I think there's a meta habit I have of picking up like <laughs> hat challenges. And, like, and I have a meta habit of following Lewis doing these. Uh, but <laughs> six <laughs> habits that Kyle and I are both doing right now. And there's some incredible benefits to doing these is uh, drinking a gallon of water every day. Uh, so full gallon of water. That's important for feeling good mentally, physically, and then two workouts. So similar to your exercise habit, we do two 45 minute workouts every day. One of them has to be outside, which I think is a hugely important piece of that for just getting the vitamin D exposure, getting that perspective, being out in nature. Usually that is either walking or running or biking. Those are the main outdoor activities. And I think that's super beneficial for thinking and taking a break from work. And then you have to follow a diet. You set your own diet on this plan. But I think, I mean, you, you can't set your diet to be a bad diet, obviously. And I think so th those are just habits of like maintaining your body for physical performance to be able to keep up and be energetic and take on a lot of work and actually finish it without crashing. 
And I think that's a huge habit, the over encompassing habit of taking care of yourself through those specific things, sunlight, water, whatever. Uh, then it also is just the general habit. But then the other two pieces, you take a progress picture every day, which I think is a very process driven habit. So you take a picture of yourself in the mirror to show your physical improvements from the beginning of the 75 days to the end. And that kind of teaches the habit of like a small thing every day. And then over time, it's a very like process input type habit. You don't drink alcohol during this challenge. I think uh, that's a good habit. I don't think, you know, I'm not opposed to any consumption of alcohol. I've clearly had some in my life. I'm 21. So I had my first sip of alcohol, however long ago that what my birthday was, uh, obviously for our listeners. And then what else is there, Kyle? Uh, then I read 10 pages of nonfiction and it has to be on paper. And again, the importance of the paper is the, that physical gratification of feeling progress as you move through the book. And I guess the challenge, the designer of the challenge's assertion that it's just better to read physical books. And obviously reading uh, a habit you shared is very important for being exposed to new ideas and uh, learning new things on your own. And you can choose your own books so you follow your own curiosity. And that's also a good habit. So that's a little, that, those are six habits I'll share for now. Right. It's, um, well, it's, you, you touched on, if I put mine in four categories, uh, and, and how much time you spend is up to you. It's some, doing something intellectual every day, do something mm-hmm. physical every day, do something spiritual every day, and do something emotional every day. Touch your emotions, whether it's laughing. It's, I'm not saying you should cry every day, but uh, you, know, you just should be in a position where you get, to, I mean, that's kind of why you hang out with friends, is you get, that's where you get some emotional nourishment. Uh, you get that relationships. Uh, you get that watching a movie, you, you, whatever. But you gotta, so I think there's, those are the four things that, uh, and, and in retirement, I can spend more time doing those things, but I think you're, you know, you're on the right track. It's the developing the discipline. That's the, that's the key thing. You know, habits are only as good as your commitment to doing them. And, and all the things that you, you describe there, you get to see the benefit. It does work. It can be small things that have a compounding effect that over time can have a huge, you know, back end uh, enjoyment. So, uh, I'd say those are the things, you know, so I don't, you know, like I said, it, it's for me, spirituality can be whatever it is to you. Some people say, well, I can go sit out in the woods or I go sit by my duck pond or I go out on the lake and for me that's spiritual. That's fine. I mean, I think that it's just, but it's being able to kind of pull yourself out of something else to say, I'm going to focus on that. There's a, a guy's name, Rob, it's called the art of noticing. Uh, and I picked up, it was, it was a, one of the recommendations that Shane Parrish had. Rob Walker? Rob Walker, yeah, yeah. Did you read that book, The Art of Noticing? No, I just searched it quickly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's, it's a fairly easy read, and, and you can make it really easy. Uh, but it's about, you know, it just kind of gets you to pay attention. So, you know, if I'm going to go out, if you're going to go out for your run or your bike ride, it's not just I'm slugging through this to get through with it. it you know, being aware of the things that are going on around you. You know, how many times have I gone by this building and never noticed this? And I think that's a, to me, that's an improvement is I, I try to be every day, particularly when I go on the walk with the dogs, because I'm usually listening to podcasts, is I just try to notice something I haven't noticed before. Uh, pick one thing that I can say, well, I didn't, didn't notice that before. So that's one of the things that's currently that I'm working on is being more observant to what's different or changed. Definitely. I think... That's a huge piece of the outdoor uh, component of our workout is that opportunity to pay attention to uh, the little things, especially, I mean, it's that exposure to nature. That's kind of what I was sensing at earlier. So you, you appreciate, you know, the warmth of the sun or the natural sites around you. I'm in very desert landscapes right now, but even that has its own kind of unique beauty. 
and then watching the cars. It's just, if, especially if you go without entertainment, without music or without an audiobook, that really forces you to find entertainment and thoughtfulness in your surroundings. So that, it's not intentionally a spiritual component, but it sometimes serves that purpose. Uh, and also you, right. you made the point there about uh, discipline. And I think you could even make the argument that discipline itself is a habit. And I think that's one thing that I've learned a lot from the 75 day challenge because the 75 day challenge to do it properly is high stakes where if you screw up one component and you miss that piece for that day, you start at day zero. So you have to have 75 consecutive days, which is wow. what makes it a challenge. And it's that discipline. It's kind of using the fear of failure as that built in accountability mechanism. But at a certain point, it's to teach you to be accountable to yourself and then discipline when you're really serious about something. And it's like, you can create your own stakes for failure. It's like, you wouldn't view yourself positively for not fulfilling a commitment you made to yourself. That's kind of where discipline uh, can almost the role for it can be taken out. And that's kind of a theme we touched on a little bit where design positive habits and discipline becomes less necessary, but in general, making it a habit of being disciplined to the commitments you make to yourself is beneficial and something I'm definitely, definitely working towards. Uh, Kyle, do you want to move to the, the bonus section now? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've talked around, a lot on this podcast uh, about reading and, and books and, and we all like to read. But one question that we wanted to ask you is what book have you gifted the most to people? I, I like that question because uh, it means it meant something to you. Uh, I'd say over my career, it's, you know, it's this one. It's called the communication catalyst. This is the one I, I mentioned that, that Richard and, and Mickey Connolly wrote. Yeah, it just, it holds up. I read it every year. And I, I read the entire book. It's written. It's it's written as a, as a little novel, but there's just a lot of wisdom that's sewn in through that. Uh, it's about a barbecue place in Texas. I'll share any more than that. But it's an easy read. I read that, and I've probably given. I always try to keep four or five because I'll give away four or five a year. So I like that one because it hasn't lost its relevance through time. So that and the other the other book that when I was at Westerville that we would give to every new salaried employee uh, was a book called The Servant by James Hunter. Uh, it's about leadership and it's about leadership from a servant's perspective. Uh, good book, I, I would highly recommend that. I think he's written a, an update to it. I haven't written the update, but that's that's one that it doesn't lose its its relevance through time. The most recent ones are two that I really love. One's called. Seeking Wisdom from Darwin to Munger. It was written, written by a guy named Peter Bevelin. And it's about how we think, the psychologies of misjudgment, how physics and math figure into our misjudgments, and then how we learn and, and guides to better thinking. It's a slow read because it's just jammed full. It's dense with content. And I think Kyle's probably told you this. I like the physical books because I like the tactile feel of touching something. But I also write notes. You ever seen a book? I've got, I've got notes all over it, and then once I've read it, I'll go back and then do a I'll do a word document summary of here's what I learned from that book. So that way, if I'm looking for something, I can. It's almost like a an extended index. Okay, it was in this, oh, yeah. this book. So uh, yeah. so that's that's one seeking wisdom, and then the other one is called the Emperor of All Maladies, uh, Doctor Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's about the biography of cancer. It's about 700 pages. Again, not an easy read, but he does a great job of kick, taking you through from a layman's perspective with some medical overlay to it. How have we treated it historically? Uh, how has that changed? What does the future look like? Um, so I read, uh, I read that in 
bought five copies and sent them to people that I know that had somebody in their family impacted by cancer. It gives you a greater appreciation for the challenge and then hopefully the, the possibilities uh, of, you know, there is one of the things I learned almost since day one, there is no one cancer. There are variations of cancers uh, in your body. So to expect that there be a, to be a cure in the 60s, they were, they were, it was, the, their slogan was, the National Institute of Health was, you know, let's go to cure cancer. Well, then they realize there's too many of them and they behave in too many ways. So you start to understand about, you know, the, the importance of, of, of testing. And, and, you know, as you get older, there, there are exams that you will go through that have a, a good chance of, I lost a brother two years ago to cancer. I lost a mother about three years ago to cancer, different types of cancer, different reasons. But, you know, virtually everybody's been impacted. That, that's a great book. And it's actually, if you don't want to read it, and I like reading first, but I think on Netflix, there's a documentary that was done. It could be on Amazon Prime. It was about, I don't know, three episodes or a couple hours per episode. It really follows the book very well. I just, I found that's a fascinating book. And I've told Kyle, there's so much in my life I don't know much about. I married my math tutor in college because I wasn't good at calculus. And today, I've, she gave me a book called The Joy of X. And it's about, it's not math for dummies. It's a history of math and how you use formulas. I mean, she's taught me to, you mentioned earlier, Lewis, about we're talking about input processes and inputs versus outcomes. And everything with her is Y is a function of X. Y is the outcome, X is the input variables. So I begin to look at life through Y is a function of X. So she's had her, she's impacted me by, by her math skills. She still teaches uh, college kids and high school kids uh, math and calculus every semester. And she does it because it keeps her sharp. And I, I always walk through the kitchen and she always asks me questions she knows I don't know the answer to. And she'll go, and he was a CEO. Can you believe that? He didn't know how to do signing. That's funny. And I, that's uh, funny that you brought up education and teaching because that was actually my next question. So like I shared with you before this call, I'm an out-of-state student at the University of Alabama. I came on a scholarship from Las Vegas. When I showed up, University of Alabama is this pristine, gorgeously manicured campus with more out-of-state students than in-students. It's nationally credible. It's huge. And it's probably completely different than what it was when you went there back in the uh, 70s and 80s. I was curious what it was like for you as a student at the University of Alabama because it was such a different place back then. What are some differences you've observed between then and now? I mean, you just have such a big perspective on Tuscaloosa history. Like, it's funny to me, you know, before this conversation, I just know about Jack Warner Parkway. You know, that's like the road wrapping around the backside of campus following the river. And for you, he's like a major mentor in your life. That's like a real person, not just the name of a road. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on some of that Tuscaloosa UA history over time. Good question, Lewis. I came here in 70, I guess January of 76. And with the exception of about two years that, that Linda and I lived in Birmingham, I've lived here all that time. When I came here, I think the student population was 18, 19,000. There were major lecture halls in Bidgood, which is the old Bidgood that weren't air conditioned. Uh, I sound like I you know, rode to school on a dinosaur. I mean, it, it was that bad everywhere. But it was, uh, it was not, and, and the dorms were just hideous. I didn't ever live in a dorm because I had a friend who did, and just, oh, it was awful. So you compare it there to here, the campus was smaller. I'd say with the classes perhaps were more intimate. I don't know what a classroom experience is like today. We had a few yeah. – well, yeah, true, but virtually. But before the virus, I, I felt like the, the professors were very accessible. You know, the classes were generally smaller. 
but things were different. You know, we didn't have uh, didn't have a calculator. You know, the engineering students used calculators, but you know, we didn't we didn't use calculators. Didn't have obviously PCs. You know, we ran, we did simulation games like Lonnie Strickland. I don't know if either one of you are taking GBA 490. One of the best courses I've ever had, and he and I've stayed in touch, and I still have my book. I always tell how good a class was. If I didn't sell my book 15 minutes after the exam, I kept it for some reason. It meant something. I've still got that book. But we had to card punch. You had to do, you go down to a punching thing. You punch the card, you win them in, you know, put them in there. That's how we ran the simulation. So the technology has changed. It was a beautiful campus, just bigger now. Uh, I'm trying to think that, you know, this, uh, I had fond memories of it. Uh, my first two years in school, I was in a fraternity. So I didn't probably spend as much time on my academics those first two years than I should have or that my parents expected me to, but I got through, I was in, in business school and then got married. And from 79 on, I was paying my own way and it was time to you know, get serious about it. So I did quite well, got into graduate school, made one B, uh, all A's in graduate school. But the, the experience, you know, I was still back in the Bear Bryant eras. This is really going to sound old to you. You know, I think Bryant coached into 81, 82. So they, we were still big deals, just, just like we are today, you know, with saving. We were big deals in football, so it was kind of known as a, you know, place for, for championship football teams. But then the city changed with, you know, JVC came to, to town in the, in the early 90s and built a big, I think they made gosh, VHS tapes and, and, and uh, compact discs, uh, a big factory. And then, of course, when Mercedes came in the, uh, the later part of the 90s, it changed the whole dynamics of, Campus. I'll give Bob Witt uh, as a guy that deserves a lot of credit. I've been on the on the president's cabinet uh, for, for quite a while when Bob first got here. And he came in, in the first meeting, he told us what his vision was going to be. And he showed us how the in-state funding from the state was going this way, you know, it was going down every year. And if we wanted to grow and compete with the best of the best, we had to bring in out-of-state students. He explained uh, how he was going to put recruiters in the, in the various states that graduated more high school students than could go to school at state universities, Florida, Texas, California, uh, and some others. And we went from 19,000 to what, 38,000. And we got, Sounds to, about right. Bob got here, when Bob got here, we were about 22. And he says, our goal within, I don't know, five years is to get to 26, 27. We were at 30. No, I mean, the, the quality of the student population today is just incredibly impressive. I'm glad I'm not working anymore because I don't have to compete with guys like you. Yeah, you, you guys you guys get it. You're committed to it. Uh, you're willing to make sacrifices in, in your discipline. So I'm very impressed with the quality of students uh, at this university. Yeah, it was. Uh, I have nothing but fond memories. I, both of our kids, our son got a degree in business, graduated in 2009. Our daughter got her master's in marketing in 2006. She lives in Nashville now. She's a mother of two. And our son... Went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming for the summer in 2009. He's still there. So that's where he lives and, and loves the lifestyle out there. So, yeah, nothing but fond memories. And one of the wonderful things that hopefully when you're my age, you look back, we had about three or four really close friends that have stayed close friends all these years. So we've gone through first wives, second wives, sometimes third wives, but we're always doing things as couples. And we still do one trip every year. We go to, been to New Zealand, we've been to Italy. We've uh, always go to a national championship game if it's, if it's available. So that's also kind of a part of that. The experience that you had is not just what you learn in the classroom. You learn, you forget a lot of the facts of what you learn. 
but you won't forget how you learn to think, how you learn to process, how you learn to make decisions uh, and develop confidence you know, in, in your decision making. That's the, that's the really great part. Not to me, graduate school was so much better. I enjoyed it, one, because I was probably more committed to it. But at the graduate school level, the teachers treated you closer to being peers. There was respect uh, because, you know, if you made a C, you're out anyway. So I think that was a, it was more of a collaborative, you know, peer type of relationship. I think it's, it's still a fabulous university and I'm proud of, of the business school and how, how it's continued to progress. So yeah, it's changed. Yeah, will it keep getting bigger? I'm not sure. Outside, let's say the virus disappears tomorrow. There's this. I think. I think this virus is, in my humble opinion, this virus is going to change the way we educate. Once we've learned how to do things remotely and online, and I'm a big fan of the Khan Academy. I saw an interview on 60 Minutes of him 10 years ago. Brilliant guy, and I love what they're doing. Uh, so I think that looks. The future is probably less bricks and mortar and more, you know, one faculty member helping out 10 people at 10 different levels. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And actually one of our previous guests, Dion, he's working actively on an alternative to a university that I'm sure will uh, benefit from the coronavirus because all their learning is online and, and the students live in different cities over the course of their, their schoolwork. But we have one last question for you. And it's based off a framework that I like to think about for my own life. And that is imagining that you're 80 years old and looking back on life and thinking, which moments would I spend the most money to be back inside of? Because for me, this really flips, flips everything on its head because Inversion. we work constantly to be in these moments of, of high achievement. Right. But those aren't the moments that I would pay the most for. The moments that I would pay the most for are the ones where I'm, you know, experiencing emotions with people that I love or, or doing or being on a trip or, you know, all these memories that don't have to do specifically with me. And and that's what I'm working toward constantly. So it, it really tells me to, like, try, try and seek out those experiences that I would pay more for when I'm 80 years old. So for you, looking back at your age, what moments would you spend the most money for to go back to? Well, they're, they're like what you, you just said about your own preferences, and that is uh, it's the experiential things. You know, it's, uh, yeah, there were things that, that happened throughout my working career that were, you know, particular moments I enjoyed. But would I, you know, trade a, a year of my life to go back and do that? No, it's, it's the things that we got to do with our children. Uh, our daughter Carly's 30, 36, Andrew's 35. So when we, when they were like in high school, we went down to the British Virgin Islands a couple of times, rented a sailboat. And I remember waking up on Christmas morning on a sailboat, you know, with my two kids. Now there was a captain and there was a cook, but because I'm not a sailor, but you know, th those are moments you think I'll never forget this. So we went to uh, about four years ago, we went to, before Carly got married, so she's been married three years, we went to South Africa on a photo safari. Flew to Johannesburg, 15 and a half hours, by the way, from Atlanta to Johannesburg. That was a kind of brutal. I told them they could have all they could drink on the way there. But we spent, you know, 10 days together, went to Kruger National Wildlife uh, Refuge, and, you know, we got to pet elephants and tigers and just things that, you know, we didn't but we got to do that as a family. So it's all those shared experiences like that. You know, some of the, we've been to Italy together. The, the friend trips, 
are wonderful things. So it's it's it is experiential, and for mostly for the most part, it is you know with your family or the people you love, the people you care. They're, they're going to be part of your life. You know, I was lucky. I grew up grew up in Decatur, Alabama. In that time, there's probably twenty five thousand people. And Huntsville wasn't a lot bigger then, but because of the uh, Marshall Space Flight uh, Program and then the uh, Redstone Arsenal, it just exploded. My dad worked over there, commuted daily. But, you know, older brother, younger sister, you know, my brother's just barely a year older than me. My sister's about 14 months younger than me. Eventually, my parents figured out what was causing all this. So there was only just three of us. But I grew up in, in that kind of a household. And then my mother's side of the family, my maternal grandmother, was one of, of nine children that were still, when I was, you know, 10, they were all still alive. So we would have usually Sunday lunches at my grandmother's house and everybody stayed 20 cousins there. So there was that sense of belonging. You know, this was right or wrong, goofy or not goofy. These are my people. And you kind of got to know them and we've, you know, we've stayed in touch, you know, through all these years. So it's, you know, it's those things that kind of give you a sense of place, a sense of purpose. I, I agree with you. You got to work hard. But you're not working, you know, there's an old adage, you never see a U-Haul being pulled by a hearse. Uh, one, because you can't take that's that stuff good. with you. Uh, and no one ever, on no, on no one's tombstone ever read, I wish I had worked more. That's not it either. So, but there is that balance. I mean, the things you accomplish uh, work-wise, career-wise, give you satisfaction. It all, also provides you the opportunities to do with the other things that have lasting meaning. Uh, and that's just those experiences that you have with your family. So it's, I've got mental images, not mental models, but we've got mental images of all of these things we've done. My son was 10 years old. We sat in Atlanta in 1996 and watched the Braves win the World Series. That's the only one they won. They went a bunch of times, but we were there that night and still have pictures of us sitting by the dugout. He'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. We taught our kids to ski initially and then we went out west to uh, some places out there so it's just that's the reason you do all the stuff that's sometimes challenging and, and wears you out is you get to replenish your batteries and renew your soul by the experiences that you spend your time with so that yeah if i could that plus being able to get out of bed in the morning and walk and not have some part of your body hurt it'd be nice to to you know to have that as well but that's just the function of the age yeah, that that was an incredible answer. Really, exactly what I was looking for. Uh, I, I wanted a story like that. But Mike, thank you so much for your time. Lewis oh, and I pleasure. really appreciate the level of preparation that you put into this conversation beforehand and during. The level of detail and everything that you mentioned in all of our conversations has has really always blown me away. From the story at Westervelt to to how you learn to mental models. You're clearly deeply intellectually curious in, in a wide wide range of areas. You know, Lewis and I branded this conversation early on as, as learning through conversation. And I think we definitely met that goal in this episode. So thank you for coming on with us. Oh, Kyle, it was certainly my pleasure. And Lewis, it's, it's great to, to meet you. And one day we'll actually do it in person. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up our interview with, with Mike. It was an incredible couple hours there talking about his habits, the way he develops goals, the way he communicates, and, and really just the way he looks at the world. Lewis, what do you think? 
Yeah, Kyle, I completely agree with that. He and I really hit it off well for the first time we'd ever met. I'm really looking forward to hopefully meeting him again this fall uh, in Tuscaloosa and getting to know him a little more better in person. But it was a great conversation. I hope our viewers enjoyed it. Uh, if they want to support the show and like episodes like this and help us keep growing the show and reach more people, the best way for them to do that is leaving a rating or review on iTunes or just simply sending a link to an episode that you think a friend would like to that friend. That's the best way for us to promote our content to more people. So with that, you can find us on social media on pretty much every major platform by searching for The Lewis and Kyle Show if you want to get updates there. Otherwise, just check back here wherever you're listening in about another week and we'll put another episode there. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.